That's all. Good morning, class. It is Sunday morning, December 8th. I want to thank Nate and Dory for teaching in my stead the last two Sundays, affording Janice and me a little respite, uh, traditional Thanksgiving break at the Outer Banks. We uh, hopefully have the handout in front of you, and if you're listening Radio Land, it may be hard to understand. We've got a diagram here. It looks like a telescope because it is. And the title of this is Seeing Others Most Clearly in Order to Serve Jesus Most Effectively. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for these precious saints. Thank you for your love for them and uh, what you put in their hearts as a love for you and for others. Teach us now by your word. Help us indeed to see you more clearly and to love others more effectively. In Jesus' name, amen. So sort of the theme of our class thus far has been our need to understand ourselves uh, in light of the word of God and particularly the privilege of serving Jesus. When we look at other people, we ultimately need to see that we're serving Jesus or we're not serving Jesus. So we have a need to sort of magnify uh, Jesus in this in order to serve Jesus well and serve others well. And there's a lot of issues that bear on this. So kind of what we're doing this morning is we're some, I'm taking everything we've done thus far in the class and compressing it into this one diagram. And so there are a number of issues bearing on how you, uh, how you serve Jesus well and others well. And those issues I've teased out in these different, <clears throat> what would you call this in the telescope? These different components of the telescope. Because it, it is indeed a privilege to serve Jesus Christ. And what question are you asking when you have the opportunity to bless another person? Sort of what's the overall question you're asking? What can I do for them? Because you're doing it for Jesus. Or if you don't do it, you're not doing it unto Jesus. What can I do for them? How do I promote what is good for them? <clears throat> and, then, and also, how do I lim- eliminate what is bad for them? So that's the simple paradigm that we're working with. Our verse here at the top is 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That's a tall order, isn't it? Of course, this is impossible apart from living a life, having your heart filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's tease out the different issues that bear on uh, seeing others most clearly in order to serve Jesus more effectively. What is it I need to know? What lenses do I need to look through? I guess those are different lenses. And I like that Chris put a lady's face on the left-hand side. That's nice. We, ladies and men, we're all in this together. The privilege of serving Jesus. So, the first lens is, as we've seen in the class, the way you treat them is you're treating Jesus. And this is the passage in Matthew 25. As much as you did not do it unto them, you did not do it unto me. As much as you did it unto them, you did it unto me. First critical template through which we see other people. I'm doing it unto Jesus. Do we stop and think about that? Particularly with people that are different than us, people we have a harder time relating to. As much as you've done it unto them or not done it unto them, you've done it unto Jesus. So, and you'll notice at the bottom, I've teased out 
various sins that are involved and are neglecting to do these things. I won't go into these in a lot of detail, but let me just mention them. Unbelief. I, I don't believe I'm, I'm doing it or not doing it unto Jesus. Unbelief. Prejudice. I am self-righteous and therefore I don't give myself away in love. Lazy. Pride. Snobbery. Self-centeredness. Greed. You could put a lot of different sins down there, but I think it's worth where I'm falling down, what is the specific sin I should be repenting of? Specific sin. Okay, so that's the first lens. As I look at serving another person, I'm seeing it as doing it unto Jesus. Thoughts? Commentary? I mean, this is a lot of review from where we've been in the class. Secondly, let's look at James 3.9. Someone turned there. I want to see that person as an image bearer. A fellow image bearer. James 3.9. First person that has it, read it for us. Are you there, Lisa? I am. Go, girl. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Okay, do you see this irony? With our tongue we bless the Lord, and then we turn around when somebody cuts us off in traffic leaving church, and we curse them. Same tongue, two very different things. And why should we not curse them? Because they are made in the image of God. Yes? These sins correspond to the... Mm, somewhat. Okay. Yeah, somewhat. That's a good question, Rock. Somewhat, yes. It, it doesn't tease out perfectly, though. So that would be a good homework assignment. Try to identify the sin with the lens. Or add in new sins. And help me improve the handout. So I want to see them as doing it unto Jesus and as an image bearer. Let's look at Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. The sense of solidarity I have with them, that is, that's, I'll just tell you what it is. It's, it's, it's the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. So what solidarity do I have with people that uh, I find different than me, look different than me, act different than me, speak different than me? What is my solidarity with them, as it were? As I do it to them, I'm doing it to myself. Right? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What would I want them? Uh, what, I, what would I want them to do to me? The next one, empathy. This is a teaching Dory did a number of weeks ago. Remember those in prison as who remembers the rest of the Hebrews 13 verse? As though in prison with them. Empathy. We're praying as a church for the. Uh, as a church, we're praying for the church in China, the early rain church. The, the, the latest update, I think, was that the pastor is still in prison and another uh, is an elder in the church is on trial and he might be thrown in prison. That's one of the latest updates. He, he was sentenced to four years, the elder. He was sentenced to four years? Yeah. So uh, do we stop and empathize with him? And our hearts break and grieve and that moves us to pray fervently for them? I hope... Praying for the persecuted church is something you do regularly, and particularly we as a wall, praying for that church, the early rain church in, in China. Empathy. You're saying, could that be me? That could be me. That could be me. So why aren't you living in a culture where we're persecuted this way? Merely the grace of God. So we receive that grace, and what do we do with it? Get smug, happy sit back on our haunches? No. We turn that grace into an opportunity 
to serve, to bless, to pray, whatever. Take grace and use it, multiply it, turn it out for, for good. The next one is agnostics. In other words, there's things I don't know about that person. So if someone turned for us to Proverbs 18, you knew sooner or later we get the Proverbs in here. I've got three verses. Somebody read verse 2 for us. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So what does the fool not know? What? Everything. Everything, because what's he doing? He's only spouting off what he knows. He's not stopping and saying, what does this person think? How do they feel? What do they believe? Their mission is to only be telling what's on their mind. So they live in terrible agnosticism. This is a a sinful agnosticism. You're not called to be this kind of ignorant and just be one who's always telling other people. How about verse 13? If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Thank you, Janice. Why is that agnosticism, sinful agnosticism? You're not listening. Somebody starts in on something and you don't know the rest of the story and you're just spouting and drawing conclusions and this is what makes for good marital spouts. Spats, right? And a lot of our conflict in relationship is we don't listen and hear someone to the end. And have about verse 17 in Proverbs 18? When his case first seems right until the other comes and examines. Okay, just sort of saying the same thing. So what do you know about another individual person? They have a what? They have a personal history. They have a history. Is it important for you to know something about that history in order to bless them? Yes. Their personal history is more important for you to know than your opinion if you're going to love them as you're loving Jesus. So what do you need to do? Learn how to ask questions and listen. And ask more questions and listen. As a rule, people like to talk about themselves. As a rule, people feel loved when you've shown interest in their life and you've asked them questions and helped them tease out what's important to them. That makes them feel loved. And when people give you details in their personal history, you now have hooks to hang truth on and ways to bless them. Everyone has a history. Does that make sense? And people's experiences are quite different from one another. Assumptions. The Acts 14 passage is uh, Paul and Barnabas. I think it's in Lystra. And the miracles performed so the people there, because they worship false gods, they, they think the gods have come. And they're going to bow down and they're going to worship Paul and uh, Barnabas. And they go, no, 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 we're, we're men just like you. So the, the people in that city, because of their weird religion, had false assumptions about Paul and Barnabas. <coughs> And I want to tease this out with a a, a phrase I came up with. This isn't anything uh, 
this is just an, uh, something I, uh, I'm giving you, called unconscious, is that unconscious assumed mobility. So when my daughter goes jogging in Atlanta, what does she do? Puts on her running shoes, she puts on whatever she wants to wear up here, and she goes running. Doesn't even have a thought to it. She has an African-American friend. What does he wear when he goes out jogging in Atlanta? He can't do that. He deliberately wears a, a runner's reflective vest because he knows from his experience that a black man seen running in certain neighborhoods will be assumed to be a thief on the run. My daughter was operating on an unconscious assumability. She never gave another thought about what it looks like for a white person to run in, in her neighborhood. Very different from her black friend. Second illustration. I was talking to Charles Robinson maybe a year ago at a, a dinner at the Brockmans. Just sort of getting to know Charles, and he said he was from South Carolina. I said, oh, there's a lot of nice beaches in South Carolina. Did you all go to the beach growing up? He just said, matter-of-factly, we couldn't. And I thought I knew what he meant, so, but I didn't say any more about it at the moment. And I, I, I uh, revisited this with Charles recently to use this illustration, so I'm using this with Charles' permission. I said, Charles, I just want to clarify what I thought you were saying that the reason you couldn't go to the beach in South Carolina when you were growing up is because you're African-American and you weren't allowed. He said, that's right. All the white people could go to certain beaches and there was one little beach where only the black people could go. It, so growing up, did I go to the beach? Yeah. Never occurred to me I couldn't go to a beach because I just, I was, it never occurred to me. I had an unconscious, assumed mobility. That's the reality, not only for Charles growing up in South Carolina decades ago, but my daughter's African-American friend in Atlanta. It's just something to think about. This is people's experience. Did you ever think about that? I never gave one thought what beach I could go to. Charles had to. So people have a personal history that affects profoundly the things they can do. Think, Catherine? About, well, I was thinking about this even before you brought up this. Um, our first word earlier, we said empathy. So on this one hand, I'm supposed to have empathy with these Christians in China who are in prison, but I don't understand that experience, and I know that I don't understand that experience. I, That's right. I know that if one of them came and talked to us, I could not honestly say, oh, I understand. Yeah. I, I know that, and yet... <coughs> so... In this case, I guess what we're saying is we need to come knowing that we don't know so that we can listen so that but sometimes we can't ever say, I understand. All we can do is say, oh, I pray with you. But it's a lot to say I understand. I, I think that's fair. Yeah. But our friends who have different experiences as us, at least they can conclude, well, they cared enough to listen and enter into my world. So that might then change the way they view things and other people, and they relate to me sympathetically anyway. 
But I, that's a good point. I, I really can't say, I understand, Charles, what you went through. I didn't go through that. But I, how did that, tell me more about that. And then how does that shape the way I think about it? And so, I'm, so I'm, I, I, therefore, I give more thought to situations when I'm talking to people about this thing, unconscious assumed mobility. There's another word for it. I'm not using it. I'm deliberately not using it. This is my phrase. You, some of you have figured out what it is. It's fine. What? What? Yes. Speaking from Charles' position, it it creates a barrier when you begin to explain your experience, and uh, and if people want to say that to you, well, you shouldn't think that. That that. Illegitimate. <laughs> so you can't have a relationship with that person. That's the end of it. You know. So. So, am I throwing up barriers by the way I respond? Yeah. This is, it's being self-consciously thinking about that. Is what I'm saying. How I'm responding. Am I being dismissive? Or can I just first stop and weep with that person? I mean, this is actually it's a first, when I talked to Charles a year ago. It's the first time in my life I ever. I mean, I should know better. I grew up in the '60s in America, and this is America, and I know enough about our sordid history about this. And I, it shouldn't have shocked me, but it did, because of this. <clears throat> my reality is I have an unconscious assumability. That was my reality. I didn't have it yet. Anyway, so, so Jan is saying. Talk less, listen more, don't be dismissive. Or what would another word for it be? Don't, what am I doing to throw up barriers? I, I think, um, like I express that, I express that about my sons. I, you know, I'm, they go out running and I am very pleased <laughs> that they do uh, because it's not safe to them. And um, so if I say that, then people want to um, I have to just dismiss that oh well you know your son teaches or that so to me it's saying that you're you have an illegitimate experience that you're 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 creating something when something isn't there and I know something is there. <laughs> so it's no yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine <clears throat> that it might be, it's a shallow, well-intentioned, but a retort of like spouting back a scripture in a conversation, like, oh, but right. be anxious for nothing, you know, or right. you know, that's just going to dig the knife in deeper and make it feel safe to re-approach. And so that would be called, surely, problem-solving, but don't solve problems till you've spent a lot of time entering into that person's world. And you might solve the problem differently. Right? We, some of us who are task-oriented, are problem solvers, the first thing we want to do is, well, here's the solution. No, no, no. Just sit and listen and enter that person's world. Okay. I also think there's naivete. You know, we're naive and we need to gain wisdom to understand yeah. our world and how other people experience are different than our own. Yes. 
So here's a, here's a personal thing that ha happened to me recently. I've just finished watching Ken Burns's thing called Baseball, and I, I had a, I had, a, and you go back far enough, and I was just a little boy. I didn't know how much racism there was in Major League Baseball in this country. I had no idea. It was awful, awful, repulsive, infuriating. I don't have words for it. I'll have to tell you. Now when I watch a sporting event and they're doing the national anthem and I look at African American players, I wonder what they're thinking. Home of the brave, the land of the free. I, I just have a different appreciation for what they're thinking given that sordid history. And I think that's good for me. I'm not going to get into the kneeling controversy. I'm just saying I have a different appreciation given our history in America with sports and all this kind of stuff. Okay, that's something I've gone through in the last two months. Anything else you want to say about unassumed, unconscious, unassumed uh, assumed mobility? Dory? Well, I'm not sure where you add the word mobility because there's a lot of unconscious assumptions. If you, if whenever you assume, oh, you're just like me, you know, you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is, no, you're not like me. <laughs> you know, you are unique. God's made you who you are. You have different experiences. And also, I just think unconscious assumptions are a state, whether it makes you mobile or not, because it could just be all sorts of facets. Or I'm not sure what you mean by the word mobility, I guess is what I'm saying. Is but what you're saying is true. I'm just narrowing it to, to two specific examples. Charles couldn't go to the beach, and uh, Jan's concern for her kids, where they jog. That's a mobility. That's all. I'm just uh, So, sure, mobility narrows it unnecessarily, but we have unconscious assumptions. That's right. No doubt. Both are true. But part of, part of the joy of living... Charles, I use the illustration that I got your permission from. Um, part of the joy of living is mobility. It's freedom. It's freedom to move, to go places. That's so. I narrowed it for illustrative purposes. Okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Do you see Dory's point? We don't need to necessarily put the word mobility in here, but examine our unconscious assumptions. So, for example, when we were getting training. Uh, we did a mission trip to the to uh, North Africa. And we got training from uh, an American who was in Morocco. And he said, when you sit in that culture, you don't cross your feet and put your feet up because it's rude. I would never know that, right? I, I just, it's a more comfortable way to sit. He said, in the Middle East, men don't show their feet. It's just not done. So there's an unconscious assumption, right? And there's lots of those doing cross-cultural missions. <clears throat> But our neighbors have different, our neighbors right here in America have different experiences. Let's move on to debtor. Let's go to Romans and see what we owe each other. Romans 12, 18. Who would read it? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay. So um, I've got this relationship with another person. They're an image bearer. They're Jesus. I identify them as I identify with myself. Uh, I want to empathize with them. That could be me. There's things I don't know about their personal history. And what do I owe them? As far as it depends on me. 
to be at peace with them. Some of us are born fighters. It's in our DNA. Maybe uh, you have nature and nurture. Maybe the way you were raised, you were raised in an argumentative, combative situation. Your instincts in certain situations are to combat, argue, prove you're right, need to be in control, whatever. There's idols working there. Those need to be demolished if you're going to fulfill that. Live in peace. Your first concern should be, how do we maintain peace in the relationship? It's not peace at all costs. That's faking peace, but true peacemaking. How about Romans 12.10? What do you owe someone else? Love, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, so Paul moves here from honoring the king to honoring one another. What do we owe each other? On the surface, on the face of it, we owe each other honor. We honor them as image bearers and fellow believers. And how about 13.8? Somebody read that. Who know one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Thank you. So you get up in this morning, I get up in the morning, and the first thing you say is, I'm a debtor. I owe everyone in my sphere of influence love, honor, and as far as it depends on me, to be at peace with them. Do we really see ourselves as debtors? What is the one engine on the face of the earth that will, that will create that sense of debt in you, in your heart? What must be there? What's that, Terry? Humility produced by, yes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility produced by? My status before God. I am a rebellious creature saved by grace, and he loves me. What right do I have to bear ill will towards someone else when I am forgiven by the king? Exactly. Exactly. Seeing what you were, a rebellious person, how you were saved through the cross of Jesus, and what you have as a result, abounding grace and mercy. That will produce humility. That will move you to see yourself uh, as a debtor to other people. I owe you love. I'm so loved, I owe you love. I owe you peace. I owe you honor. You'll never get it anywhere else. It's only the gospel that creates this. And that's why you're attending a gospel-centered church. Your worship is gospel-centered. Hopefully your teaching and preaching is gospel-centered. Hopefully, now we do community is gospel-centered. Let's move on to the, to the next one. Um, contextualize, and again, each of these things lines up with one of these lenses in the telescope. What I mean by contextualize, let's go to Acts 17.28. This is Paul speaking on Mars Hill. This is a, a fantastic illustration of taking the gospel and contextualize it into a certain culture. You know, he's, he's, he's speaking to Athenians and Epicureans and philosophers, and uh, this isn't the four spiritual laws. He doesn't do the four, he doesn't do Tempest Crusades four spiritual laws. They're fine, but not in this context. And so Paul quotes one of their poets. Somebody go ahead and read the verse. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Thank you, Michelle. So as Paul's making some of his points to preach, ultimately he preaches the resurrection. 
And they began to sneer. And da, da. But he, what he does is he draws from some of their own literature to say, you know, by common grace, some of your poets even have tapped into things that are true. So he's contextualizing his message. What is this person's context in which they live? They have a theological context. They have a cultural context. They have other contexts. And you find that out by asking questions and listening. Asking questions and listening. Any thoughts on that? Okay. You also have to study a little bit. You have to be prepared. To elaborate. I'm just saying, you know, if you, if you didn't know the culture, you couldn't have told them what their poets said that were the same as yours. So yeah. I think preparation is helpful. I mean, for me particularly, if things, if they, if things just don't flow out of your mind to your lips, then you have to be prepared. Yeah. Good. <clears throat> When, when I was doing evangelistic home visits um, years ago through my church, we'd go into somebody's home. It's a follow-up visit when they, when they visited the church, if they let you in. And what do you do? You sit down in their living room and you start to look around. And you find out what's of interest to them. You notice the paintings. You notice the titles of the books. And you go into a house and you see Knowing God by J.F. Packer. Okay, these people are believers, you know. You, Right? Who has knowing God? And, you know, but you just study the things that are important to them, and eventually you're going to get hooks on which to hang gospel truths. How about esteem? He's got Philippians two three. This is the hardest thing in the world to do. Don't try this without the gospel. <laughs> it will kill you. You will kill others. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Thank you, Dory. So, uh, how, how are we doing with this? <laughs> My goodness. What are we naturally and instinctively doing when we're interacting with other people? We're finding reasons to, without the gospel in our hearts, we're finding reasons to Feel superior. How I'm different, and this is why my way is better or different. And you know, some of the conflicts Janice and I had early in our marriage was I thought the Sherrett way of doing things was superior to the Beechwood way of doing things. What do you call that? Pride. Just gross pride. And I've come to see that that's totally inaccurate. And I didn't have the humility in my heart to say, I'd like to learn that their way of doing things. So our, our first conflict was, when do you do the dishes? Now, I've, I've used this illustration before. I'm, I'm open. I'm open. So, beloved, how do, you get, how do you get that DNA in your heart? Counting others more significant than yourself. And if you really do, you're going to want to know what's best for them, how to serve them, how to love them. How do you get that? When you skip the first two verses, the first two verses are about what Christ has done for us. Have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, 
and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. That reality, that truth in our hearts will get us looking outside of ourselves, thinking others more importantly. Otherwise, we don't have any good reason to, or we get false reasons to. Terry? That's a nice principle, you know, have the mind. Well, how do you get that? You know, is it a 12-step process, or is it a lifelong thing of abiding in Christ and this verse is the proof, the consequence of my walk with God? I think that's where from. Certainly the latter. Well, how do you get the mind of Christ? You read it. This is the mind of Christ. Right here. I think apart from, you know, Jesus praying, sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. That's why we're a church that believes in the Bible. We'll always stand on the Bible. Okay. So both daily, consistent, scripture, reading, Asking for the renewal of our minds by the truth, letting the truth confront our lies, our assumptions, and then this long, steady obedience in the same direction, seeking to be filled with the Spirit. How about the last lens? That is, I'm called, this is a privilege of serving Jesus, I'm called to bless them. 1 Peter 3, 9. Actually, read verse 8, because I just love verse 8. This is the first verse after Peter tells husbands and wives how to treat each other. And he gives a summary for everybody in verse 8. So read 8 and 9. Finally. Thanks, Radu. So again, those graces that only the gospel can produce. How'd you like to live in a community, a household, a church where verse eight was the norm? It would be a magnificent place to live. And then he anticipates our natural reaction, right? Don't revile, don't curse, don't get back at people. You see this all the time in athletics. Somebody hits a guy, he gets up, he hits him back, and he gets flagged. You see it all the time. You idiot, the ref is going to see you, the second hitter, you nuts. Right? That's our instinct. Boom, you hit me, I'm going to hit you. You curse me, I'm going to curse you. You did this. So what's the supreme example of escaping that? Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. We're crucifying Jesus. We're spitting in his face. We're mocking him. We're whipping him. And he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what to do. To bless them is to find concrete ways to make their life better. Okay, so we're now um, to the little box here. What is the goal? I'm, I'm, there, here are all these issues bearing on seeing other people most clearly in order to see, serve Jesus most, most effectively. What a privilege to serve Jesus, right? Those of us who know him and love him and are over, uh, overcome by his sacrifice for us and the wealth of his grace towards us, we want to serve him. That's the heart, that's the heart response. What can I do for you? And the answer is, treat other people as if they're me. Okay? How do I promote what's good for them and eliminate things in their lives that are bad for them? 
And so Paul gives us, let somebody read the 2 Corinthians 13, 11 to 14 passage. So we've distinguished what happens inside the church versus with those outside the church. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you all. Thank you, Rock. Who wants to live in that community? Yeah, we do. Takes a lot of work. For your part, what is your part in this? What is your, where does it start with you? In what way does it start with you? I'm sounding redundant. But it starts with you getting before Jesus and being humble before Jesus and filled with his grace. So without clear sight, of the, of the work of Christ for you, this stuff isn't going to happen. Sorry to be simplistic, but it's true. You can't give away what you don't have. If you're supposed to give away grace and peace and love and concern for others, it's got to be in your heart by the grace of Jesus. And of course, this is the kind of body Jesus wants to produce among us. And have on outside the church, Romans 12, 13 to 21. Share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people in low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil with evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Thank you, Lisa. So that's an incredibly high ethic, isn't it? Where is it modeled? In Jesus Christ. How did he overcome our evil? With the good of taking our evil in his body, in his physical body. So we have these um, obligations, these these blessed ways to serve the poor, the stranger, the unborn, and the oppressed. Very specific target groups, as it were. Any thoughts, questions, comments about the telescope? I, I don't want to overwhelm you, but I, we really would sort of, we're bringing together everything we've done thus far in the course, because next week we're going to start something some specific application. Nate? Uh, I really appreciate how you're separating inside the church from outside the church. Um, I think we don't want to get cut off, caught up with the outside the church um, group and just trying to say we want to be good neighbors to get along and not cause 
cause trouble. Um, I appreciated how you said earlier that you want to treat people as how you would treat yourself. Um, and if I'm an unbeliever, the thing that I want, the way I want to be loved, is somebody to tell me that there's a judgment coming and if I don't repent, I'm going to spend eternity in a lake of fire. So I think we want to think about loving our neighbors. Sure, we want to get along with them and treat them well, not just some of these things that we've talked about, but also at the core is really trying to do what we saw Paul doing earlier, contextualize, see where they are, but with a goal of sharing the gospel with them. Yeah. I mean, the most loving thing you can do is share the gospel with somebody. Let me, let me draw a diagram on that note, and that is, uh, if, if, this, if this place represents where I'm assuming most of you are, and that is a full-orbed understanding of the personal work of Jesus Christ and a wholehearted commitment to it, right? A serious, intentional, Bible-believing Christian, right? That's where I assume most of you are. There are people in varying degrees of understanding and relativity with respect to that. So take someone who's never heard of Jesus and lives in a different culture. They're way out here. They say now, missiologists say now that in Europe, from your, humanly speaking, from your first contact with the gospel to believing it, how many years? Something like 14 years. Humanly speaking, that's how long it takes for somebody to make that jump. A long time. So you have neighbors that are thoroughly secular people. <clears throat> not, only, not only spiritually in the heart of hearts do they hate God, right? We all are born haters of God. But maybe consciously they really disdain Christians for whatever reason. They experience or whatever. That's what they've been taught. So for them to embrace the gospel requires a whole lot of steps. And you need to be sharing the truth and also doing what? Loving them, serving them. Becky Pippert, remember the book uh, I.B. Press, Out of Salt Shaker Into the Earth? Becky Pippert, uh, I think it, it, the illustration is in that book. It doesn't matter. But she gives an illustration of a man who, who works side by side with another man and uh, this guy finally becomes a Christian and starts sharing the gospel with the nice co-worker. And the nice co-worker says, oh, I'm also a Christian. And the man who became a Christian said, oh, wow, that's really interesting because the thing for so long that kept me from becoming a Christian was I saw you as a really nice person who didn't seem to need Jesus. <laughs> so this guy had to repent of being a nice person without ever talking about Jesus. But the, my point is, love, serving people, listening to people, seeking to enter into their personal history and story, these are things that tend to break down these barriers. And so what barriers, are, what barriers are there naturally? What barriers, as Jan was saying earlier, are we erecting by just... So the goal is, if you have an, an evangelistic contact, contact with somebody, the goal should be, let me just see if I can move them in this discussion a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Yes, Lee? Also, for me, I, I don't think that I can discount what Peter is saying about suffering for doing good, because we didn't talk about that as far as the reaction you're going to get from people. Yeah. And I've always been afraid to kind of put myself out there because of the reaction I might get. And I'm, I'm working on that, and I'm overcoming that. 
Wonderful. So we have to be prepared. We can do all these things, but the reaction is not up to us. It's between them and Jesus. And so we have to look at how many times, you know, we call in prison or Jesus mocked, or we have to be prepared, mentally prepared for that. Good. When we go out the door. Excellent. Because if we're not, it will really uh, affect us. It, it will affect, or it does to me, affect our relationship with Jesus. I get you know, upset, maybe I get angry, you know, about, well, God, I did this, and then look what happened, you know, look, look what reaction I got, you know. So, but it's not up to us. We just have to work accountable for what we do. And just like you said, that friend, I mean, I would hate to be told that. Yeah. Yeah. And who's one of the first uh, women in the, in the New Testament who illustrates this risk taking? <clears throat> the woman at the well. You hear more about her in about 35 minutes. So I'm going to close our class. We'll see you next time. Next week we're specific, look specifically at what our denomination teaches about racism. That's what we we'll do next week. That's what's coming. Elders need to be dismissed. We're having a, a session meeting downstairs. 10:20. So let me pray. Thank you for this dear class. Thank you for the truths of scripture. At one and the same time, Lord, the standard is so incredibly high. And yet the grace is sufficient through Christ. And thank you for the transformation you're making in us and bringing in us. And that's all to your glory. Together we say glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to the God of grace. Thank you for your patience with us as we struggle to get relationships right. In Jesus' name, amen.